The Christian life is a life of war. That may seem like a strange concept. After all, didn't Jesus instruct us to love our enemies? To pray for those who persecute us? To not return evil for evil, but to turn the other cheek? Aren't Christians called to lives of peace, kindness, gentleness, as fruits of the Spirit? We might have thought that Christianity is a religion of peace. And make no mistake, it is. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He came from heaven to create peace between God and man, and between man and man. Jesus does call us to love our neighbor as ourselves, including our enemies, to never avenge ourselves, to put away all wrath and malice, and to endure evil without doing evil in return. The way of Christ is a way of peace. It is a way of love. It is a way of kindness and gentleness. It is also a way of war. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on armor. Arm yourself for battle. He says that we're in a wrestling match against an opponent. There are going to be attacks and onslaughts that we have to withstand. And we have to stand firm. Hold our ground. Take up armor. Belt, breastplate, shoes, and shield. And last but certainly not least, your sword. So how do these things fit together? God, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, answers that for us this morning in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Here the Apostle Paul uses the language of war to describe our Christian life. And he clarifies for us what sort of war that we are to wage. And he does that by telling us who our enemy is in verses 11 to 12 and what our armor is that we're to take up in verses 13 to 18. So we'll take both of these in turn. Who is our enemy? If we're in a war, we ought to know who we're fighting. Wars are determined in no small measure by the identity of the opposing armies. So if we have the Allies versus the Axis, talking about World War II. If we have the Union Army, the Confederate Army, we're talking about the American Civil War. Right? So we know one side of this conflict. You and I, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, are in a war. Who's on the other side? In verses 10 through 11, Paul tells us, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. On the one side, there's you and I, and the rest of the church of Christ. On the other side, the devil. The devil is a fallen angel. An angel created good, created righteous and holy, like everything God made. But who, 
because of his lofty, exalted position, fell from God, turned away from God, disobeyed God, and sought to bring others down with him. We're fighting against the devil, Paul says. And he goes on to say in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Christian life is a life of war. As as a believer in Jesus, you are a soldier in his army. You're called to go to battle. Against whom? Not flesh and blood. Not other human beings. This might be a challenge for some of us to grasp. With this language of war, we're thinking about an earthly human-to-human struggle, conflict. And we're so fixed on this earthly life, aren't we? We're, we're glued to the things below. We're glued to our screens and computers and TVs, hearing constantly about all conflicts and uh, political upheavals and outrage and rebellions and wars going on all throughout the world. And you and I can come to think that these purely human matters are the most significant, pressing matters, matters of ultimate concern and the highest importance. But they aren't. A couple times when I was writing the sermon, I was tempted to say the Apostle Paul here uses the imagery of war. I decided not to do that. Because that makes it seem like what Paul's talking about isn't actually a war. It's just like war. So he uses the imagery of war. But it's not actually a war. Uh, To say the Apostle Paul here uses the imagery of war makes human wars more ultimate and says whatever spiritual stuff he's talking about here isn't really a war or conflict. It's just sort of like a war um, as though human wars, the more fundamental and more real than the spiritual stuff, whatever Paul's you know, going on to talk about. The opposite is the case. This great spiritual war and conflict that Paul is here describing is more real, more fundamental, more ultimate than any earthly physical war or conflict between a group of people or nations. Most fundamentally, human wars are like this spiritual war, not the other way around. All human conflicts that ever were, ever are, and ever shall be are in fact the result of this greater spiritual conflict. The great battle from the fall of man until Christ's return between God and Satan, between Jesus Christ and the devil, the adversary, between the holy angels and demons, the holy Catholic Church, and all of the devil's demonic hosts. One interpreter put it like this. It's as though there's this great cosmic battle going on between God and his holy angels and and between or not, not between God and his holy angels, between God and his holy angels and Satan and all his demonic hosts. 
There's this great cosmic battle going on between them, and you and I are caught up in the middle of it. We are the battleground. Our hearts and souls are the battleground. It's a spiritual battle, and so we can't see it directly, but it is most definitely happening, and we see the results of it. Mankind, ourselves, we're caught up in this cosmic battle. Satan seeking to pull down as many of us to hell with him as he can. And the Lord redeeming whom he wills from Satan's clutches, whom we all by nature follow. By nature, we are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. So this whole idea that there's this great cosmic even more real spiritual war going on over humanity runs entirely contrary to the spirit of our age, right? Because we're moderns. We've moved beyond all these primitive notions about demons and devils and angels and spirits. We're materialists. We believe that all there is is matter, time, and chance. You talk The Apostle Paul, you talk about how we don't war against flesh and blood. Well, that's all there is. That's what I say. That's all there is, is flesh and blood. That's the modern spirit. And that is our bent as 21st century Americans. And of course, Satan is very pleased when a society or culture takes this viewpoint. It makes his work, in some ways, much easier. Because the devil is a schemer. Verse 11, Paul says, the schemes of the devil. The devil is a schemer. Satan is very intentional. He's very smart. He doesn't blunder about haphazardly doing evil in this world. He has a plan. His goal, he has a goal that he wants to attain. And he strategizes how he can attain it. What's his goal? To steal, kill, and destroy God's creation. To rage against God, the author of life. To seek to deface and distort and destroy God's creation and especially mankind as God's image bearers. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is the tempter and he is the accuser. Have you thought about that? The same one who is the tempter is also the accuser. So Satan, he tempts you into sin. He says, come on, come on over here. This will be great. This is good over here. Come sin, right? Tempter. As soon as you sin, he puts on another hat. Now he's the accuser. What have you done? There's no hope for you, you despicable person. You've gone beyond the pale of God's love. There's no hope for you anymore. Satan wants to draw people away from God, whatever that looks like, in whatever way he can. And he studies mankind. He studies you. And he thinks about the best way he can draw you from God. And it may not look the same for all of us. For some, he takes the route of drawing them into open rebellion and unbelief. You know, just rejecting Christ and Christianity altogether. Living in open sin and unrepentance. For others, Satan takes the route of drawing them toward hypocrisy, hidden rebellion and unbelief. So you're still in the church, but you're not really trusting in God. You're living in sin secretly, 
You don't really repent of your sins. One form of that it could take is actually the sin of Pharisaism and self-righteousness, where you think you are serving God, but in fact, you are going about dishonoring God by what you think is serving him. For ancient peoples or more undeveloped civilizations, Satan may take the more religious route, setting up false religions. For modern people or people in more developed civilizations, he may prefer to take the irreligious and secular route of trying to make most people not think about God or religion at all. Because Satan is content with people not thinking about him at all. He doesn't care if people are blindfolded or if they have their eyes wide open, so long as he can lead them off a cliff. That's what matters. Satan sometimes doesn't look like Satan at all. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, uh, that Satan can make himself appear as an angel of light. And his ministers can appear as ministers of light. Sometimes Satan's route to convince you or to convince you to turn away from God is to actually convince you that going his way is the way of righteousness, that going his way is actually pleasing to God. C.S. Lewis's second book in the space trilogy, Paralandra, uh, gives an account of another world in which um, there's like another race, so it's not a human race. Uh, that God has created on this other world. And then there's, there's essentially Satan in this other world. And, and uh, it's, it's the beginning of that world. So the fall has not happened on this world yet. It's another race. And uh, so essentially he's describing another way that the fall could have happened as Satan tempts this first woman on this other world. And the tactic that Satan takes in that world with kind of the eve of that world is to say, You've been forbidden by God to sleep on this island, right? That was the great sin. In our world, it's don't eat of this tree. In this world, it was don't sleep on this island. But you can do, you know, anywhere else is yours. Um, Satan's tactic for her was to say, hey, God may have said that you should not sleep on this island, but really he does want you to. He wants you to realize that your freedom is found not in just blindly doing whatever he says, but is found in you uh, being willing to go beyond the boundaries, the artificial boundaries that he's placed. He, He may have told you not to sleep on the island, but he really wants you to. He wants you to take this step beyond what he has commanded, and then you will be like him. You will grow up and be mature and free like he is. And that's what he really actually wants. Satan's schemes are various and many. He studies humans. He studies nations. He studies families and individuals. He looks at you and he says, how can I get him? How can I get her? What tactic would be best? What's my best approach? What particular sin can I draw them toward? What good can I keep them from? If you think of yourself as a city and your heart As the citadel, Satan wants to scale the wall and take the citadel. So picture him looking at your city walls and asking himself, how can I get a foothold? 
Paul says in Ephesians 4, leave no foothold for the devil. We're going with the imagery in this chapter. Picture Satan as this great uh, enemy archer in an opposing army. A master archer aiming his bow, looking for a weak spot in the armor in which he can lodge his shaft. In the face of such an enemy, what are we called to do? You and I are given three charges in verses 10 to 13. First charge, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong. Satan is coming at you with his temptations and schemes. So be strong. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of of evil in the heavenly places. Be strong. At this point, if you're a bit despairing, I don't blame you, because how can we be strong to face such a foe? Where will we get the strength to face such a foe? Only in the Lord and in the strength of his might. God doesn't call us to be strong in our own resources, just to kind of grit our teeth and find the energy within to get through it. No, he calls us to be strong in the strength that he himself has and shares with us. Ask yourself, how strong is God's strength? He created the heavens and the earth with a word. He sustains all things in existence by his word, moment by moment. There is no end to his strength. He never tires or grows weary. He is the strength of all other strength in the world. All other strength in the world is just borrowing from him. And you and I, by God's grace, can be strengthened in the Lord with his strength to fight. So if at first you were despairing, now you should be rejoicing. You can be strong in the strength of the Lord himself. Second charge, stand or stand firm. We read it in verse 11 and verse 13. It's the same word in either case. And the meaning here is stay your ground. Hold the line. As you see the demonic hordes approaching and drawing you away to sin, And to unbelief or whatever it may be, do not give in. Don't retreat. Don't run from the battle or defect to his side. Stand. This takes courage, resolve, self-discipline. The third charge is to put on the whole armor of God. Since we're facing a superhuman foe, we cannot rely on our own human resources. We need to take up the whole armor of God. And this notion of whole armor in the Greek is panoplia. The panoplia. This is where we get the line in the hymn we just sang before the sermon to put on the panoply of God. You may have wondered what what that means. It's a literal uh, Greek transliteration from this passage, whole armor, panoplia. Pan means whole, aplia means armor. This word referred to the complete equipment of a heavy armed warrior. And so it is in verses 14 to 18 that we read of a belt, 
breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword. The idea is that we need to be covered head to toe. This isn't a a scout. This isn't a light infantry. This is heavy infantry. We need to be well supplied as we do battle against Satan and all his hosts as a soldier in the army of Christ. And we should not content ourselves with partial armor. We can't pick and choose which bits of armor we think are necessary. Like David going to fight Goliath, you know, saying, "Ah, I don't need this armor. This is the armor of God. It's not the armor of Saul. We need all of it. So what is this whole armor of God that we are to put on? Paul describes it for us in verses 14 to 18. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. What is our armor? Our armor is truth, righteousness, gospel readiness, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Some of these are virtues, truth, righteousness, faith. Some of these are not things that we do. Salvation itself is your helmet. And the last one, the the sword, is the word of God itself associated with the Holy Spirit. Notice that in all of this armor, your defensive weapon is the shield, and that's faith. Faith is... Believing God's promises, relying on Jesus Christ for your salvation, trusting what God says, Paul says, will defend you like a shield against all of Satan's darts that seek to attack you. You fight down those darts. You you guard yourself from those by believing God, believing his word. So what does that imply? You need to know his word. You need to be in his word, believing it, believing God and his promises, trusting in it. The word does show up, though, in a offensive context as well. The sword of the spirit, your one offensive weapon. The spiritual sword, which is the word of God. So once again, uh, faith in God and his promises guards you from Satan's onslaughts, protects you from any darts of temptation and unbelief coming to your heart. But then the word of God itself is a sword with which you can strike him down. The word of God is powerful. He ends with prayer. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And he goes on and says specific things to pray for. How does this relate? What does prayer have to do with what proceeds? Grammatically, it could be going especially with That idea of taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you take up the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, praying as you do so. So praying and reading God's word and applying it go together. 
That's one possibility. Another possibility is that this actually permeates all the rest. Every other act that you do and putting on this armor and wearing it, you're praying. Prayer characterizes you at all times and everything that you do in this battle against Satan. With my high schoolers, I'm currently reading through with them Homer's Iliad. If you're familiar with the Iliad, it's basically just this epic battle, so many battle scenes and um, uh, the Greeks versus the Trojans. And one thing that my students have noticed is there's a lot of talking going on. Uh, they go out to battle and they're, they have paragraph long, you know, put downs and trash talking each other or like some, uh, someone's dying and he just utters out like three pages of material. These people are full of words, full of confident boasting, trash talking, insults, gloating. The soldiers of Christ's army are also to be full of words, but not full of boastful words of pride and self-confidence, spite and disdain. Our lips are to be full of prayer. Why is this called the armor of God? In what sense do we call this armor the armor of God is what we put on? It could be because God himself is the one who grants us all these gifts and graces and virtues here described. But there's also a deeper reality that we should notice here. Ephesians 6 is not the first place we read of this sort of divine armor. The same armor is said to be worn by the Messiah in Isaiah 11 verses 4 to 5. Listen to what Isaiah says, describing the Messiah. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. So we see there, a belt of truth being worn, a faithfulness of righteousness. We see striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, a sword coming out of his mouth, striking down the earth. We see it again in Isaiah 59, verses 14 to 20. This time attributed not to the Messiah, but to the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah himself. Isaiah 59 references it in a couple verses here, but This section is so powerful. I want to read a few verses on either side. So listen to this description of the Lord and listen for the armor. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. 
So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. The Lord himself goes to battle and puts on righteousness as his breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. The armor that you and I are called to put on in Ephesians 6, the armor with which we do battle against Christ or against Satan and his demons is the armor that Christ himself wears and that God himself wears. It's not something that we do in our own strength. It's not something we're mustering up on our own, mustering up truth, mustering up righteousness and faith and salvation, but rather we're clothing ourselves with God's truth and faithfulness, with his righteousness, with the readiness that his gospel gives us, with the faith that he grants in his promises, with the salvation that he has provided for us, and with his word. These armor pieces are not our own. They are God's. And we get to wear them. We get his armor, like David. We're strong in his strength. We work out what he works within. We clothe ourselves with the Christ who has already united us to himself. The Christian life is a war. But the outcome is not uncertain. God and Satan are not two equal opposing forces vying in the same uh, way and manner against one another, like yin and yang. No, Satan is a creation of God gone terribly wrong. God is so far exalted above Satan that he with the word could cast him away whenever he chooses. And he will one day do so. God is greater than Satan. He who is in you, Christian, is stronger than he who is in the world. The, the Lord Almighty is, is like a wise general, allowing the battle to continue till at the proper moment he comes in with the final attack. And Christ is the victor. We, we read here of authorities and, and uh, rulers Cosmic powers of the present darkness, all these satanic hosts having uh, imagery of authority and rulership attributed to them. And we find this same imagery, this same imagery in Colossians 2, where we are told that Christ at the cross set aside the record of debt that stood against us because of our sin, nailed it to the cross, and in doing so put the rulers and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 John 5 says, everyone who believes in Jesus overcomes the world. We are soldiers in Christ's army fighting this great battle, but the outcome is secure. Christ is the victor, and we are destined to reign and rule with him. So stand firm. Stand firm. Be strong. Put on the panoply of God. Let us pray.